It's witchcraft. <laughs> it's 4:20 a.m. Hi and welcome to episode 45 of the Stone Witches Hour. On this podcast, two best friends on literal opposite coasts of the USA get together to tell each other scary stories, creepy urban legends, and dastardly true crime. All, of course, while smoking copious amounts of the best marijuana we can get our hands on. I'm your host, Layla, representing the West Coast, and this week I'm all alone on the podcast, bringing you a mysterious missing person case out of California, and a stand-in for Shell telling you an East Coast ghost story submitted by a listener about the most haunted job site they were ever on. If this is your first episode, have a seat, pack a bong, and prepare to get spooked. And if you've been here before, thank you so much for continuing to hang out with us and get high. We hope you're having just as much fun as we are with this podcast. Now, normally, Shell would be joining me, but she's off doing her own thing this week. I miss you, Shell. I hope all is well on the East Coast. Salem, Massachusetts, it's probably super spooky and cold this time of year. So welcome, join me on the Stone Witches Hour while I pack up some of my homegrown cannabis and tell you the story of the mysterious disappearance of Bryce Lespisa. All right, I'm gonna pack myself a nice little bowl of this homegrown. Now, if you listened to last episode, you know that I had a little bit of a glitch in curing my Gorilla Glue and I ended up with some really overly dried weed. It tastes okay. I mean, it didn't go all the way to like super dry hay and taste terrible, but it's not the best. It doesn't have a great aroma, it doesn't have a great taste, gets me high. So what I've been doing is I've been mixing it in with some of the, you know, the like last little dregs of jars of other weed that I have and kind of crumbling it all together, making what Shell would call a salad of weed. So I'm smoking on some of my uh, ass end of jars and overdried Gorilla Glue. So feel sorry for me, guys. It's getting me really high and it tastes just fine, but high quality weed, this is not today. Does the trick though. So I hope you're smoking something a lot better than I am. I would say this probably has a middle of the road THC with everything all thrown together. I'd say probably mid twenties, certainly nothing as high as the low thirties or mid thirties that we get occasionally from the dispensaries or from a really good farmer if we're lucky enough to find someone who grows, but uh, definitely not too shabby. So while I pack this up, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Bryce Laspisa. On August 30th, 2013, Bryce Laspisa disappeared without a trace. The 48 hours before that continue to baffle his family and friends to this day. Where is Bryce Lespisa? What happened? Was he trying to make it home and got lost? Is he still alive? Could he be out there today? Bryce Lespisa was an only child, born April 30, 1994, to Karen and Michael Lespisa in Springfield, Illinois. He has been described by his family and friends as very kind, funny, charming, charismatic. He had an easy manner, likable, and displayed an artistic talent early on. He found it easy to make friends and had an idyllic childhood. They said that he was very striking and that he stood out from the crowd with his smiling face, his green eyes, and his bright red hair. His friends and family loved him. His family was very tight-knit. In 2012, Lespisa graduated from Naperville Central High School, which is outside of Chicago in Illinois. His parents retired early and moved the family to California. They moved into Laguna Nigel, outside of Orange County. Bryce went with them and began his freshman year at Sierra College in Rockland, California. 
which was about a seven-hour drive north from his family's home in Laguna Nigel. He had, by all accounts, an excellent freshman year. He and his roommate, Sean Dixon, became best friends, and they had a fantastic time. He also got himself a girlfriend named Kim Sly, and everyone thought that they were the perfect couple. He went home to Laguna Nigel to spend the summer with his family. When he went back to start his sophomore year, that's when things began to change. Shortly before classes started, he started drinking heavily. His girlfriend started noticing erratic behavior, and it soon became apparent that he was drinking quite a bit. And when his behavior escalated, his girlfriend and his friends confronted him about his erratic and angry behavior. He admitted that he was also taking Vyvanse, which is normally prescribed to people with ADHD, which Bryce did not have. Despite this confrontation, his behavior worsened. Bryce's alcohol use and drug use got worse and worse. He began drinking every day, according to his roommate, Sean Dixon, as much as two-fifths in one weekend. So two-fifths of alcohol is basically 1,500 milliliters, or two-fifths of a gallon. That's almost half a gallon. That's a lot of alcohol. That is a lot of alcohol. To put it in a little perspective, one-fifth of alcohol is equivalent to 16 shots of alcohol, or 16 cocktails. Two-fifths is roughly 32 shots of alcohol. Most people get intoxicated after three or four shots of alcohol. So 32? That is a dangerous, dangerous amount. He continued to use Vyvanse to stay up late playing video games and was avoiding classes. And his behavior became increasingly unusual. On August 27th, he broke up with his girlfriend Kim by text message saying, quote, she'd be better off without him. He also sent his roommate, Sean Dixon, a very unusually heartfelt message stating, I love you, bro, seriously. You are the best person I've ever met. You saved my soul. On the same day, he sent this very sweet text message to his college roommate. He also gave away his Xbox and a pair of diamond earrings that his mother had given him, all warning signs of suicidal behavior. The next day, August 28th, Sean was so worried about his friend Bryce's behavior that he called Bryce's mother, Karen, to tell her that he was worried about her son. Later that evening, Bryce himself called his mother. He was at his girlfriend Kim's home. Kim had been so concerned with Bryce's behavior that evening that she had taken his keys away from him and refused to let him drive. When he told his mother about the argument on the phone, Karen convinced his girlfriend Kim to return the keys to his 2003 Toyota Highlander and allow him to drive home and go to bed. His mother was concerned enough that she offered to fly up to check on him, but he said no, he wanted to talk to her the next day and said that he had a lot to talk to her about, but didn't get into specifics. Kim reluctantly gave him the keys to his Highlander, and he left her apartment around 11.30 p.m. on the 28th, and unbeknownst to anyone, heads home towards Laguna Nigel. About 1 a.m., he calls his mother, and she assumes that he's at his apartment. The drive from Kim's house to Bryce's house takes roughly 90 minutes, so Karen is pretty sure that her son Bryce is home, safe, in bed. She went back to sleep, assuming that he was safe at home. But phone records show that he had called from a location about an hour's drive south of his college. The next morning, around 11 a.m., she was woken by a phone call from her insurance company's roadside assistance service. They informed her that her son had run out of fuel around 9 a.m. 
and that a roadside assistance had delivered three gallons of gas to him. Only he's not at home. He's about 200 miles away from Laguna Nigel in a town called Buttonwillow, which is near Bakersfield. The drive there from Kim's house would have taken about roughly five hours. But at that time, at 9 a.m., he's been gone for a little over nine hours. And no one knew that he had been headed home to Laguna Nigel. No one knew he had left, and no one knows what he was doing in those nine hours. Bryce's parents were under the impression that he had gone home that evening, so she immediately called his roommate, Sean Dixon. Sean informed her that Bryce had never come home that evening. What he had done instead is after speaking to his parents, he'd left his girlfriend's apartment and started driving to Laguna Nigel, which would have taken roughly eight hours. But he ran out of gas about 200 miles north of Laguna Nigel, outside the town of Buttonwillow. Bryce wouldn't return his mother's phone calls. He didn't seem to have the phone on at all, and his mother and father were frantic. It takes Karen a little while, but around noon, she gets a hold of Christian, the gentleman who brought the gas to Bryce earlier that day. He said that Bryce had seemed fine other than running out of gas and had stated to Christian that he was headed home to Laguna Nigel. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Christian offered to return back to the spot where he had seen Bryce, which was right near a service station, and he said he would check around to see if anyone had seen or spoken to Bryce and to determine what direction he had gone and what state of mind he was in. When Christian got back to where he had given gas to Bryce, he found Bryce was still sitting in his Toyota Highlander in the exact same spot where Christian had brought him gas three hours earlier that morning. Bryce was just sitting there doing nothing. And Christian called Bryce's mother and then gave the phone to Bryce and told him to talk to his mother. Bryce spoke to his mother and agreed to drive home. He reassures his parents that he was just getting some rest and that he'll head out once he gets off the phone with them and be home in about three hours. Christian watched as Bryce drove away at roughly 3 p.m. on August 29th. So it's now been over 12 hours since he left his girlfriend Kim's house. Three hours went by and Bryce didn't come home and he wasn't answering his phone again. Hours more go by, and they're still unable to get a hold of their son. About nine hours after they last speak to Bryce, they file a missing persons report with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And sheriffs are sent to the location where his phone was last pinged, which is near the rest stop where he got gas from Christian that morning. At that location, there's no sign of Bryce, and there's no other data available from his phone, as if the phone had been shut completely off or destroyed. The police continue their search for Bryce and amazingly find him eight miles away, merely eight miles down the road from where he had gotten gas nine hours earlier that day. When the police approach him, he tells them that he's headed home to his parents' house in Laguna Gigel and that there's nothing wrong. Bryce is fine, sitting in the driver's seat of the car on the side of the road. At the time the sheriffs find him there at the side of the road, he has been in the area of Buttonwillow for roughly 20 hours, almost one complete day, in the driver's seat of his car, simply sitting on the side of the road, as far as we know, and again stopped for hours. The officers approached Bryce and said that he seemed lucid, awake, friendly, responsive, showed no signs of any type of intoxication or drug use. They searched his vehicle and found no alcohol and no drugs. When they asked Bryce what he was doing, he said that he was going home, that he was planning on driving home to Laguna Nigel, but that he had just pulled over to rest for a little while. The police told him that his parents were very worried. They expected him six hours earlier. He seemed reluctant to call them and seemed to not want to speak to his parents. 
The police finally dialed the phone for him, much like Christian had, and handed Bryce the phone. Karen spoke to Bryce and told him to come home. He tells her that he'll go home and Karen isn't convinced. She tries to get the police to take him into custody, and they tell her that there's nothing wrong with him. They have absolutely no reason to take him into custody. He seems fine. They tell him to go home, and they head away. Shortly after that phone call with Bryce, Karen calls Christian to let him know what's going on and explains to him that despite it being nine hours later, Bryce had only made it eight miles from where Christian had last seen him. Christian decides to head out that way just to take a look and see what's going on, and to his complete and utter shock, Bryce is in the exact same spot where the police had found him about an hour earlier. Even though he told the police he was leaving, he had never left that location. After talking to Bryce for quite a while and convincing him to call his parents, Christian convinces Bryce to head home around midnight. And this time, Christian isn't just going to accept his word for it. He tells Bryce he needs to head home and that he's going to follow him. Bryce drives off and Christian follows. This time, Bryce continues to stay in touch with his parents, calling them and answering the phone when they call. And after about 10 miles, Christian pulls over, calls Karen, and tells her that he feels that Bryce is truly headed home this time. The drive from where he is will take about three hours. Although he's kind of stingy with details and not really willing to answer questions about exactly where he is, he tells them that according to his GPS, he should be home around 3.30 a.m. He continues to answer their calls and keeps the lines of communication open until about 2 a.m. when he tells his parents that he's tired and he's going to go to sleep for a bit. His mother agrees that this is a good idea and tells him to pull over and to call her as soon as he wakes up in the morning. At this point, he should only be an hour, an hour and a half away from home. However, at 8 a.m., the Lespisa's doorbell rang. It wasn't their son. It was a California Highway Patrol officer. The officer was there to inform the Lespisa's that they had found the 2003 Toyota Highlander that Bryce was driving, abandoned. It had been crashed off the side of an access road, down to 25-foot drop. It landed on the front of the car and then tipped over onto the passenger side. They said there was barely any blood, just two drops of blood inside the car. The back window had been broken out from the inside. Bryce's cell phone and his laptop were found inside the car, and a duffel bag and his wallet were found just outside the car. But there was no sign of Bryce anywhere. It was later discovered that when Bryce said that he was going to pull over to sleep, he didn't. Surveillance footage and a triangulation of his phone showed that at 2.15 a.m., rather than pulling over for a nap, he turned onto an access road near Castaic Lake. Roughly two hours later, at 4.29 a.m., the same camera photographed him going the same direction again, almost as if he'd been driving around in circles. According to forensics, they also discovered that rather than it being an accident that he went off the embankment, he accelerated before going off the embankment, showing that he had done it on purpose. It looked as if he had been trying to drive into the lake and might not have expected that the embankment was there. Investigators felt that maybe he was contemplating something. He was thinking about crashing his car into the lake as he drove around for two hours. After the crash, his Toyota Highlander was found barely an hour later by a group of law enforcement officers who were performing a training exercise near Castaic Lake. There was an extensive search over the area and not a trace of him was found. Divers dredged Castaic Lake and found no bodies. 
They used police dogs to see if they could track his location. And while they did pick up his scent that crossed a bridge to a nearby truck stop, there's where it went cold. Either he got into a truck there, or maybe he was never there to begin with. A few days later, on September 4th, charred remains were found near Castaic Lake by a jogger. They were determined, however, to not belong to Bryce Lespisa. Years later, a skull was found in the area off of Templin Highway, and was also found to not be Bryce Lespisa. No one knows at this point what has happened to him, despite numerous tips. At one point, they thought maybe he was in Missoula, Montana, and police tracked down the person the tips were about, and it wasn't Bryce, although the officer said that it could have been his twin. Investigators feel that because he'd left behind his phone, his wallet, his laptop, and his bag, that maybe instead of committing suicide, he'd planned to run off and abandon his old life and maybe start fresh. Maybe the extreme drug and alcohol use caused a psychotic break. It's possible that the sudden withdrawal from Vivance caused depression. But regardless of what happened or why, all we know now is that Bryce has not been seen since August 30th, 2013. His family and friends are still looking for him and still think that he might come home. His old roommate, Sean Dixon, at one point left Bryce's sneakers by the door. He said he left Bryce's high tops next to the front door, and he says Bryce can move them himself when he comes home. But it's been nine years, and we still don't know where Bryce Laspisa is today. Where was he in those missing hours? Why was he waiting on the side of the road? What was he thinking in those hours between times he spoke to the police and to Christian and to his parents? His mother told reporters that she'll never give up hope, even though it's very difficult. She says, it's gut-wrenching, every day not knowing, it's a living nightmare. His parents continue to put up missing persons posters, they maintain a Facebook page, and they continue to be hopeful that someday they'll find out where their son is or what happened to him. All right, well, I'm going to pack another bowl and see if I have any joints around here. And since Shell isn't here, I'm going to tell you a ghost story that was submitted by one of our East Coast listeners. So Mary Jane, and I'm about 14% sure that that name is 100% real. So we're going to go with it for now. So Mary Jane, thank you for this ghost story. Apparently, Mary Jane is a landscaper in Georgia. She has her own business. And she says that back in 2010, her company was called to a gorgeous house somewhere in Georgia, exact location withheld to protect the not-so-innocent. She says that this particular house at one time had been a barn converted into a stunning family home. The new owners wanted the landscape freshened up before they moved in, and so they contracted with her to come visit the property and give them an estimate. She says that this converted barn had a great deal of land surrounding it with extensive gardens that unfortunately had fallen into disrepair through neglect of the previous owners. After visiting the property, Mary Jane says that the whole place, although beautiful, gave her the creeps. She says it was empty and isolated, and you couldn't even see any of the next-door neighbors. Even though, she said, the entire time she was on this empty and isolated property, she felt as if she was being watched. The courtyard garden in the back of the house was especially creepy. It always felt like you were being watched when you were in there. Although, to be honest, it felt like you were being watched everywhere in the house. She says, the first time when I visited the grounds, when I was alone to do the estimate, I walked up the steps to the outside of the courtyard, and when I got there, all I could think of 
is what the hell am I doing here? The whole atmosphere was heavy and thick. It felt like the house didn't want you there. It wasn't so bad during the day, but if you stayed in that garden when the sun went down, the hairs would stand up on the back of your neck and you'd have goosebumps until you left. And always, always, it felt like someone was watching you and disapproving. Her co-workers, of course, gave her a hard time and laughed at her for her paranoid behavior. It was just a job in a beautiful location surrounded by gorgeous old gardens. Mary Jane's company won the contract, and a few weeks later they arrived on site. When they got there, there was a crew of builders that were doing some updates to the main house. When Mary Jane's crew arrived, they said hello to the house contractors, and one of her employees, a man named Frank, asked the contractors what they thought of the house. The head contractor, Leon, replied, It's a lovely place. The whole property is gorgeous. The house is stunning, but it's haunted to hell and back. He said this with a straight face, and none of the other contractors laughed. We laughed and asked why they thought that. And every single contractor came forward with a different story, some of them more than one. They said that when they were working after dark, they could hear banging coming from empty rooms. They'd go to find out what it was, only to find the room empty. And when they'd get back to the room where they were working, their tools were moved to a different area, even though no one else had been in there. They often heard whispering in the hallways or in other rooms, and when they would go to investigate, nothing. One of the contractors said that an old wall phone that he didn't even think was connected started ringing. He answered it out of curiosity, and all he could hear was static and then nothing. Immediately after he hung up the phone, his cell phone started ringing, and the caller ID read all zeros. He even showed us the call log on his phone and proved that it was there. But he said when he answered it, no one was there. We were all intrigued, but most of us laughed it off and decided to just get on with our work. Leon told us that, in particular, the back garden creeped him out the most, and his crew. But other than hearing all of their stories, our first day there was entirely uneventful, full of hard work and lots of sunshine, and getting to know the contractors on the property. The second day, we got there very early in the morning, shortly after dawn, and all was quiet. The contractors were at work inside the house. We were at work outside, not a ghost to be seen. Around 11 o'clock, I went inside to have a coffee break. And while I was in there, I heard some knocking sounds coming from the back rooms. I figured it had to be one of the contractors and went in to see if they wanted any coffee. The room was empty. I decided maybe it could have been somebody from outside, so I went around the house, and there was no one nearby. I decided it was just my overactive imagination and went back into the kitchen to finish my coffee break. Upon returning to the kitchen, I poured myself a little bit more coffee, and no sooner had I sat down than I heard the distinct sound of wallpaper being unrolled across a floor. I looked towards the hallway where the sound had come from, and I saw a shadow shoot across the door. I knew I was still alone in the house at the time and at this point decided it was best to go outside and see if I could find any of my crew or the contractors. I decided against telling anyone about my experiences, but I was starting to believe some of the contractors' stories might have a hint of truth to them. On the third day, I arrived to hear Sterling, one of the building contractors, having an argument with someone else on the phone. After he hung up, he swore a little bit and then said, I can't believe that. The truck from the excavator says he can't be here to pick it up unless we promise there's someone on site to meet him because when he dropped the excavator off to the empty property, he saw someone here. He wouldn't explain it any further, but he said that it gave him the creeps, and the house is definitely haunted, and he won't come here unless someone is here. 
When the driver arrived to pick up the excavator, he said that when he dropped it off the first time, he knew that the house was empty and that he was going to be leaving it there prior to people arriving. But when he drove up, he saw someone moving around in the house through one of the big front windows. He just assumed maybe someone had gotten there early. He says when he parked the truck and began to unload the excavator, he thought he saw someone coming out the front door. And at the same time, his radio turned on and started playing extremely loud static. He dove into the front of the truck to turn it off. And when he looked again, there was no one there. And when he realized that the place was empty, he unloaded the excavator and left in a hurry and refused to come back unless someone was there to meet him. On the fourth day, my entire crew had stories of mysterious banging and knocking noises that they had heard both inside and outside of the house while they were working. We were kind of used to it by now and would even joke to each other when it happened. On the fifth day of work, another contractor showed up to install the internet cables. He had to go into the back room where most of the noises that we had been hearing had come from. A couple hours after he started work, he came into the kitchen to have coffee with everyone else and mentioned that he would be very glad when he was done because the room itself was creeping him out. He said every time he turned his back to the room, he'd hear someone quickly walk across the floor, but when he'd turn around, no one was there. It was starting to make him jumpy. After he left, another contractor turned up to replace a few fittings on the electrical system, and he parked directly in front of the house. When he got out of the car and started walking toward the house, his radio turned on so loudly that everyone on the property could hear it. All it played was static. When the job was done, we gladly left it behind and continued to tell stories amongst each other of the mysterious things that had happened there. Mostly bangings from the back room, but occasionally doors slamming upstairs, tools being misplaced after we had laid them down next to us, and very often whispering coming from just outside the room or in the hallway. It became somewhat of a company legend. A few weeks after we had finished our work, the new owners moved in. I took Frank with me and went over to visit them and settle up the bill one evening. Frank was curious and asked the owner if they were enjoying living there. The owner seemed to know exactly what Frank was asking about and responded by saying, It's a beautiful house, but it takes on a completely different character at night. It's not the same house after dark. Sometimes I feel like it's not a nice place after dark. We were contracted to maintain the gardens and returned there several times over the next few months. We didn't spend much time in the actual house itself as most of our work was focused in the gardens, but one summer evening we were invited in to have a cup of tea with the owners. As we were sitting in the kitchen, there was a huge crash from the back room, almost as if a large piece of furniture had been pushed over. Rather than jump up and go investigate, the owners just kind of winced and closed their eyes. The husband put his hand up to stop us from going to investigate and whispered, Please just pretend you didn't hear that. We don't want the children to be scared. We insisted they check and see what had fallen in the back room. But of course, when we got there, nothing was disturbed. I don't go there anymore, and I think the house has changed hands a couple times. I'm pretty sure people can only take it for so long before they have to get out. Well, Mary Jane, that sounds like quite an interesting landscaping job. But I would think Georgia, of all places, would probably have a lot of history and a lot of ghostly activity. I would love to know exactly where this was so I could kind of dig into it a little bit and see maybe what the history of this land or this house is. What would cause such a poltergeist or ghostly activity there? I'm sure Shell will have a lot to say about it next week. But thank you all so much for joining me on this solo episode 45. So take care of yourselves, stay high, stay happy, and we'll see you next week, Wednesday at 4.20 a.m. on the Stone Glitches Hour.